I like to linger over that song a bit. Our prayer to open the blind eyes, unlock the deaf ears. We're crying out in desperation. Just about every day I hear something that reveals how revival is our only hope, friends. It's our only hope. Just this past week I saw a report that there is a a Christian organization that does relief work in Africa that a national banking institution has closed their bank account because they don't believe that their beliefs conform with the bank's beliefs. It uh, makes me feel like I'm living in a 1970s prophecy novel. And not just that, but the fact that we need revived. Revival isn't the unsaved people getting their act together. Revival is God's people becoming overwhelmed with their need of God. So as we go to the Lord this morning and around his word in Ezra chapter 3, let's begin with prayer. Oh God, we long for you. We ask that you would visit us by your Holy Spirit. Illumine the word of God in such a way that our minds and hearts would be kindled with a fire for you. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Ezra chapter 3 as we continue our series in the hope and promise of revival as it is found in Ezra. And this morning we're going to see both a joy and sorrow in rebuilding. The joy of praise and the sorrow of remembrance. Now a little background is in order. The people of Israel had been carried off into captivity and the kingdom of Judah had been conquered by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., And so they had all been gone, and the land and the temple were destroyed. It had been laid waste. The walls of the city were broken down. The temple was no more. There were no more sacrifices at the temple that was all completely done. And then God did a remarkable thing in raising up Cyrus, the king of Persia. The Persians conquered the Babylonians, And Cyrus made a decision to return peoples to their lands where they had lived and to rebuild the temples to their gods. He did this in various parts of his realm. And Judah was no exception. And so the Judean people were allowed to return. And in this chapter, what we will see is that the temple uh, is not rebuilt here yet, but the altar is rebuilt And the sacrifices to the Lord are started anew. And the foundation for that temple is laid. What we will see is a joy in that rebuilding, but also a sorrow in remembrance by the people who had seen the former days before they had been carried off into captivity. Let's stand For the reading of God's word this morning, Ezra chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, the whole chapter, 
As we seek to be worshipers here, let us follow the word of God and see how it may teach us on this focus of worship. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt sacrifices on it to the Lord, burnt offerings, morning and evening. And they kept the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord, and Jeshua with his sons and his brothers, and Codmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord... The priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Please have a seat. I want you to imagine being, uh, thinking what it was like to be a, a returnee. Here, nothing in the way of worship had taken place for 70 years. And now, as a result of a miraculous order on the part of Cyrus, king of Persia, you're allowed to return and you get back to the land, and it's just a, a wasteland. And other peoples have moved in and have taken over the land. And you're just trying to make your way, and you build the altar, and the sacrifices are restarted. 
And then you get some materials for the foundation of the temple and you have a worship service of praise and thanks for this small beginning. Let's look at this making of a beginning in verses 1 to 9. It says that the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. That's verse 1. I've heard the saying, where there, are three, or where there are two Jews, there are three opinions. And that is, not, uh, that is actually a truer statement than you might imagine, at least in modern Israel. I lived in Israel for over a year. And one of the things that was true is that Israelis just love to debate. They just love to debate stuff. And even if they agree with you, they may debate you. you know, I, I remember... One time I was at a stoplight, and the definition of, his, of an instant is when the light turns green and the people behind the first person start to honk. That's the definition of an instant in Israel. So one day I'm behind these people at a stoplight, and the light turns green, the person second in line honks right away, the person in first in line takes umbrage at this. And they get out of their car and they start to argue with the person who's second in line. The person second in line gets out of his car to argue with the person first in line. And then a whole bunch of people get out of their cars to argue with the two people that are standing there arguing. So it is a remarkable thing to see what happens here in chapter 3 verse 1 the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. The unity of God's people is a hallmark of revival. The unity of God's people is a hallmark of revival. Now notice in verse 2 the decisive action that leads to worship. These fellows, Jeshua and fellow priests, Zerubbabel with their kinsmen, they build an altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it. The altar is rebuilt. Not the temple, the altar where the sacrifices are made. You know, we have a focus as a church, seeking to be worshipers, maturing in Christ. And this is their first thing that, that, that of, of action here on their return is the seeking the worship of God. And you will see that it is in accordance with the scriptures, look at the end of verse 2, to offer burnt offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They're wanting to follow the scriptures in this. <clears throat> this begs a question. What is worship? Is it the killing of an animal at an altar and just the perfunctory actions of that? <clears throat> what is worship for us? Is it just coming to church and the perfunctory actions of that? What is worship? Worship is submitting our entire life to God in response to God's goodness and glory. Worship is submitting our entire life to God in response to God's goodness and glory. Worship is not the singing of songs, although it includes singing songs. 
Worship is not hearing the Word of God, although it includes hearing the Word. Worship is submitting our entire life to God because we're captivated by His goodness and His glory. It is just here that we come across some hard ideas. This idea of submission, submitting our entire life to God. That's out of vogue today, submission of any kind to anyone, anywhere. is just no, is how people think about submission. They think it's a bad word. But it is at the very heart of worship. God made clear how he was to be worshipped by Israel. In fact, a key reason why they had been carried off into captivity was they refused to worship God as God had directed them. And they kept working rather than resting. If you just skip over a couple of pages, in my Bible it's just one page backward to 2 Chronicles 36, you see the description of them being carried off into captivity beginning in verse 17. But verse 21 says that the whole point of that captivity, being carried off, having the land wiped out, was to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. They hadn't submitted. They weren't truly worshiping. Worship is submitting our entire life to God in response to His goodness and glory. Now, some of you may be thinking submission, I don't have a problem with that. Yeah, submission is fine, isn't it, in the abstract. Until what God says does not align with what we think. And then what do we do? Worship says, I will trust you, God, more than I trust myself. I will love you, God, more than I love myself or my opinions. Worship is submitting our wills to God's, even when we don't agree with God. William Temple put it well. Worship is the submission of all our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind with his truth, the purification of imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of will to his purpose. All of this gathered up in adoration. Worship is submitting our entire life to God in response to his goodness and his glory. Now, let's think about that word goodness for a moment. It's submitting our entire life to God in response to God's goodness. We worship in response to God's goodness. You know, as people who are uh, religious people, and I would define that by you're here in a church worship service, <laughs> there's tendencies that we all have. And some of us have a tendency toward legalism. Legalism says that God is not good. It says we can become holy, or at least can be more holy, by conforming to a set of prescribed rules, even if those rules aren't in the Bible. 
Legalism says God's not good. It diminishes and distorts the generous love of God and the freeness of His grace. It denies His goodness. The legalist does not pretend that his obedience is perfect, just that his obedience can be relied upon as a title for having spiritual life. Now, we can't go that route because it's a denial of God's goodness. But the other direction that people can tend to go is toward license. It likewise denies the goodness of God. License is the lie that says what God wants is that I be myself. License is a separation of God's law from God's person. License separates grace from our union with Christ that every true believer experiences. License says God's ways are not to be followed, rather self is to be followed. Thus license says self is good, God is not. So we kind of have one of these two tendencies and perhaps you found yourself in both of them at different points in your life. Neither one has a proper understanding of the goodness of God. The true believer is constantly overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. Now we worship not just in response to his goodness. We worship in response to God's glory as well. The glory of God is the dimension of his significance which is infinite. The Hebrew word for glory carries this idea of weightiness, that God is all that matters. You know, Pastor Jeff has been doing this series on Wednesday nights in, on revival. If you haven't been a part of it, I hope you will. And if you can't come, then at least go on our Facebook page where each week we have a little review. Pastor Jeff gives a little review of what was done the previous Wednesday evening. But one of the definitions that he shared with us about what revival is, is simply one word, God, <laughs> overwhelmed by God. God is all that matters. So think for a moment about our church focus statement, seeking to be worshipers, maturing in Christ. This is our longing. It's a seeking. We aren't there yet, but we are ever seeking more of him. This is our life, worship, submitting our entire life to God in response to his goodness and glory. And maturing in Christ is the means Growing in a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. Now in Ezra day, Ezra's day, this meant offering sacrifices. Physical animal sacrifices at the place that the Lord their God chose. So consider just for a moment. Try to take yourself in your mind's eye back to Judea. To these guys there making this small beginning of rebuilding the altar and, make, and beginning after decades of not having had any means of worship, any sacrifices. Now 
The altar is in its rightful place. And these refugees are offering sacrifices as prescribed in the scriptures. What a beautiful thing it must have been for them to experience that moment. Now, I made mention of it, but you'll want to note how many times here in this chapter they're following faithfully God's word in this. Look at the end of chapter two, uh, cha chapter 3, verse 2, end of verse 2. As it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Or verse 4, they kept the feast of booths. As it is written. They started the sacrifices at this altar before they ordered the materials for the building of a temple. That's how eager they were to start worshiping the way that God had prescribed. And they kept the holy days that are described here. You can just read through them and go, well, that seems boring to me. It wasn't for them, believe me. After not having done it for decades and now it's their means of access to God, you can read all about those days, uh, those holy days, in Numbers 29, verses 12 to 38. Now, there's a lot of areas in the area of worship that are areas of freedom. And then there's areas that are prescribed. I want to talk for a moment about the areas of freedom. You know, for example, the Bible says to us here in the New Testament, give attention to the public reading of Scripture. Uh, you'll notice that here at East White Oak, one of the things we do for that is quite often we will stand for that. The Bible does not say you must stand for the reading of the public reading of Scripture. It doesn't say that. The Bible says as often as you share in the Lord's table, you're proclaiming the Lord's death. It does not prescribe how the elements are distributed or how often. We need to grasp an important truth, don't we? Forms that are areas of freedom in the Bible can become idols if we are not careful. Uh, you'll notice today, some of you may have noticed that we did our announcements in the middle of the service. And when Andrew got done giving the announcements, some of you may have thought, well, are we done with the church service? Areas of freedom. We must be vigilant that our affection for some form of our worship doesn't itself become an object of worship. Um, <clears throat> when I was in seminary, we had a professor who would collect old Bibles. Uh, Bibles that were all worn out and uh, people, they were falling apart and people couldn't use them any longer. Uh, they would give to this, this seminary professor. Uh, have you ever wondered, what do you do with an old Bible? You know, it's kind of hard. You think, well, I don't really want to throw it away. I don't want to, you know, that kind of thing. So anyway, he got them. And what he recommended, you see, we would get syllabuses for our courses. And because they didn't want to print too much paper, they would just put the scripture references in the outlines, not the, the, the words of the verses in these syllabuses. And what he said is grab one of these Bibles and then get an exacto knife and cut out the verse and then tape it into your syllabus and you can have uh, the verses there, you know. And so I did that and one day Carol and I are at a tire store getting tires on our car while we're in the waiting room. Uh, we're, this is where the phrase cut and paste came from, by the way, <laughs> in Microsoft Word, okay? It was literally cut 
and paste, okay? And so we're doing this, and there's another person sitting there in the waiting area, and excuse me, is that the Bible you are cutting? You see, a form had gotten to be a bigger deal for this person than the substance. The people of Ezra's day didn't simply follow their hearts wherever they went in relation to worship. They followed God's word. God's word brings unity to our worship. And when we're around God's word, we do the things that God requires, but we don't, and, and we don't do the things that he prohibits. But in everything else, there's freedom. <laughs> and we should be together. God's word is what provides unity in our worship. It's when we get away from God's word and onto our own feelings and our own opinions and our own preferences that the church can be divided. People have demands that are not in God's word about what worship must be. We should let those things go as long as we are doing things in accordance with God's word, which is exactly what's happening here. They're just thrilled at the privilege of it. They aren't saying, well, we need to wait until the temple's done. No, they just follow the scriptures. God's word brings purity to our worship. It brings authenticity to it. Now, verse 3 tells us that they did all of this while being afraid. Did you see that? They set the altar in its place for fear was on them. Some suggest that they're afraid because, you know, building an altar and all of that is fearful in the presence of a holy God. And there may be some truth in that, but it's not, it's not true here because it gives the reason in verse 3. The reason for their fear is the peoples of the lands. That is, there are people who have moved in to Judah into Judea, into this land, and they were opponents of God and his people. And they're afraid of these outsiders. And so these returnees knew that unless God helped them, they were sunk. So even as they're rebuilding this altar, they're doing it out of fear of the peoples around them that have moved into this region. Notice that the worship order of Israel is renew, renewed. Verse 6, from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But this verse is actually a summary statement because the earlier verses, verses 1 to 5, describe events that happen after the first day of the seventh month. There's a solemn rest and a blast of trumpets following Leviticus 23-24. There's a description of the seventh month and the tenth day, which was the day of atonement. There's the seventh month and the fifteenth day, which is the feast of booths that you read there in verse 4, which is all described in Leviticus chapter 23, followed by eight days of prescribed worship. So verse 6 is a summary statement, right? From the first day of the seventh month, they're following all these things, all the appointed feasts, the regular burnt offerings. Uh, they began, but the foundation of the temple hadn't yet been laid. And so verse 7, you have plans are made for more worship. Uh, 
That is, we got to get the temple built, rebuilt. And the first step in that is gathering the materials that are needed. So they gave money to masons and carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and Tyrians who were really great woodcutters up north. And they got the wood brought to Joppa on the coast to be able to carry it up to Jerusalem. Plans are made for more worship. So that in verse 8, seven months later, seven months after they started the gathering of materials, it says in verse 8, they made a beginning on the temple. They made a beginning. The workers and the supervisors are identified and the beginning has begun. (laughs) They are supervising the work of the house of the Lord. Now let's think for a moment about the joy and sorrow of a small beginning. Verses 10 and 11, they laid the foundation of the temple. Temple's not built, just the foundation of it. And as they lay the foundation, the priests come with their trumpets, the Levites, the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord. Once again, this worship at this foundation laying is in accordance with the word of God, according to the directions of David the king. He'd lived 500 years earlier, but they're following his directions. So just like verse 2, as it was written in the law of Moses, verse 4, as it is written, verse 10, according to the directions David the king had given, they are following the scriptures. And what they are saying here as they do this is we want God to be worshipped. We want God to be magnified. We honor and adore Him. Nothing else matters. This is it, they're saying. This is life. It's what we've been made for. And so as a result, there is singing. Great singing over the character of God. And it says there in verse 10, that they, or verse 11, they sang responsively. That is that there's one side that sings something and another side that sings in response and they kept doing this over and over again. Praising and giving thanks to the Lord. That responsively I think is good because it gets everyone involved. It gets everyone paying attention. You're not just thinking about what you're doing, you're thinking about what the other side's doing and when you're supposed to come in again. You're paying attention. Now, Responsively is not a requirement in the Bible, but it's something that got everyone engaged. This was the great joy of their lives, to have lived hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem their entire lives, and now to be on the Temple Mount with a rebuilt altar and the foundations for the temple having been laid, praising the Lord, this was a moment that they never forgot. And what did they sing? Verse 11. Now, some of us like to make fun of repetitive songs, but the scriptures are filled with repetitive songs. The angels, for example, sing holy, holy, holy. And this song in verse 11 is one of Israel's favorite songs. It's one that they sang over and over and over again. As I mentioned at the beginning of the service, it's a verse 
giving thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. That is a verse that appears in Psalm 1061, 107-1, 118-1, It appears in uh, Psalm 100, verse 5. In fact, nine times in the Old Testament this song is recorded. And 44 times in the Old Testament the phrase, his steadfast love endures forever, is repeated. It may be helpful to us to maybe make our way through a number of the places where this this song appears so we'd get a sense of the joy that these people in Ezra's day are having as they sing this song now for the first time in decades. This song was sung in 1 Chronicles 16 when the Ark of the Covenant was placed in the tent that David had made for it. And the people sang, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. 1 Chronicles 16.34 And then, when the ark was brought into the newly constructed temple that Solomon, David's son, built a few years later, what is it that they sing? Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And then, when Solomon prays this great prayer of dedication of the temple, the temple that got destroyed, when he prays the prayer of dedication, when they're done, when he's done with that prayer, what do the people sing? Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. That's 2 Chronicles 7.3. All through the salvation history psalms that I mentioned, 106, 107, 118, 136, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 100, the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, his faithfulness to all generations. In fact, this song is used by Jeremiah in Jeremiah 33, to describe the fulfillment of the prophecy that happens in Ezra 3.11. Jeremiah 33.11. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. As a fulfillment of the 70 years of captivity. Now there's something different here in Ezra 3.11. Did you see it? Giving thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And then they add a phrase. Toward Israel. Toward Israel. I believe this is a description of the fact that now they realize something new. That God's promises to Israel are forever. That there's always going to be a plan of God for the restoration of of God's kingdom that includes the nation of Israel. Now, there are a lot of Christians who disagree with me on this point, but I think they need to reckon with Ezra 3.11, that God has a plan even to this day for the nation of Israel. And I believe that what happened here was that they sang in response, one side said, for he is good, and another side said, For his steadfast love endures forever. And then together they say toward Israel. In fact, 
I think it might be good for us to try to reproduce this. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to say give thanks to the Lord and this side is going to say, for he is good. And this side is going to say, his steadfast love endures forever. And then we're going to say together, toward Israel. Okay? Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever, toward Israel. Right? Stand up and face each other. Now you remember that it says they shout with a great shout. So that means you do not say this timidly, okay? You might say, well, I don't know if I remember what I'm supposed to say. That's easy. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever, and then together toward Israel. We'll do it a couple times, okay? Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. Please be seated. Now you get a little bit of the sense of verse 11. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Great shouting in praise of the Lord. Now you need to understand, they're giving thanks to the Lord. Why? He is good. They aren't doubting God's goodness, despite the fact that they had been through many toils, trials, snares, right? They are not doubting God's goodness. And they know that the basis of their salvation is not their works. It is rather God's covenant loyalty. It's the word steadfast love. It means God's covenant loyal mercy. And it endures forever. And this is what they sing. And then they sing it and say, it's toward us, toward Israel. There's great shouting. Verse 12 tells us that it's a divided group, though, in terms of emotion. Many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men, the ones who had maybe been children when they got carried off into captivity and now are being brought back, or have come back in this return 70 years later, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Why are they weeping? Because they remember the glory of the former days. They remember the hard hand of punishment for their sin. They remember that where they are isn't anywhere near the glory of what used to be. But then there's others who are singing with joy. End of verse 12. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people couldn't distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. It was all worship. And the sound was heard from a far distance. 
the joy and the sorrow of a small beginning. Now let me think about, uh, let's think about some applications here as we come to a close. First, as with Ezra, so with our church. There was some work that was done. The altar was rebuilt. The foundations of the temple, they got supplies and seven months later they got started on it. And in the middle of your book here, there's a little uh, description of our church work day that's coming up on September 30th. And there's some projects that could be included there, but it a lot depends on your gifts and skills. So if you would sign up to serve at eastwhiteoak.church backslash Ezra, it would be a great thing for us to know who has what skills to be able to accomplish some of these things. So that in kind of imitation of the people in Ezra's day, we too are working in such a way as to enhance the worship of his people. The second item we've mentioned twice already in our service, as with Ezra, so with our church. This coming Friday is uh, on the back side of your booklet, a watch night prayer time from 6 to 10 p.m. You don't need to be here for the whole thing, but the descriptions speak for themselves. And I think it's such an amazing thing that the very first event we will hold in our refreshed worship center is a time of prayer. And I'd encourage you to come. I also want to make a special invitation to teens and children. You might think, oh, this is not for me. You know, we look at things in our church life and we go, for me, not for me. And we make a quick conclusion, don't we? This is for every one of us. You think, well, I don't want my kids to make a big noise or I don't want my kids to get bored or whatever. Listen, boys and girls and teens need to see that a church is a praying church. And it doesn't have to all be bells and whistles and exciting, you know, carnival atmosphere. Even though we do have carnival things that happen from time to time, like our church picnic, right? But we also have times of prayer. And if your kids can endure five minutes... Let it be that. But let them see that there are people who come and gather for prayer. And maybe at any one moment, there's not a lot of people there. That's okay. We all know we are a people who pray. I would suggest that a personal application you can make to a message like this is to make a beginning. Make a beginning in your life to say, I really long to be a worshiper. I want to submit my entire life to God in response to his goodness and glory. I want revival where it's defined as God. (laughs) I encourage you to make a beginning in that. It could be just a daily prayer. It could be just opening the scriptures that you haven't done so on a regular basis. Move toward worship as you move away from evil, because that's what happens. As you move toward worship, you'll move away from evil. And you know what? The opposite holds true too. As you move toward evil, you will move away from worship. You'll have all kinds of reasons why gathering of God's people is boring. That's a good test of whether or not you're moving toward evil. 
Revival can come when our praise and thanksgiving join together in awareness of the presence of God. Revival can come when our love for the goodness of God overwhelms our drive for self-protection. One of the things that hindered you when we were doing that responsive shout was, well, I I really don't want to be people to look at me in some weird way. We think it's ourselves. It's about ourselves, and that's self-protection. Worship is being able to somehow set aside our drive for self-protection and be lost in wonder, love, and praise of Almighty God. Revival can come when we understand how great His grace is toward His people. I want to give you a couple of encouragements now. First, if you're a believer in Jesus, did you know that God loves you in a special way? It's true that by common grace we can say that God loves the world that He has made, but He has a special love toward you as an individual believer in Jesus Christ. He loves you in a way different than He loves the world. I know this because that's what the scriptures teach. In Revelation chapter 3 verse 5, Jesus speaks these words to the church at Sardis. He who overcomes will like them be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. This is how much Your God loves you. God loves his people, the church. Yes, he loves individuals, but he loves the church too. Ephesians 2. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you, the church, are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. God doesn't live in a stone house anymore, one made with wood and stone. We are the temple of God. The church is the temple of God. This building is just where the temple meets. (laughs) The building is not the temple. The people are the temple. Grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Think of it. We, the church, a dwelling place for God by his Spirit. And then God loves worshipers. Jesus said to the woman at the well, The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Not in a temple, but worshiping in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. This morning, as is our habit through this Ezra series, we are going to be remembering the Lord's death at the table of the Lord. We're doing this on alternate weeks, each week we either have some dedicated time of prayer 
or we celebrate the Lord's table all through this series in Ezra. This morning, we're going to be celebrating the Lord's table. You are welcome at the Lord's table if you are a believer in Jesus, seeking him to be a worshiper, maturing in Christ. You are welcome at this table. I'd like to give a few instructions. There are five stations, three up here and two there in the back. And go to one of those five stations. Don't, don't feel like you have to go row by row. Go when you want to go. Go to the right side of the table first for the bread and then to the left for the cup. Try to stay in a bit of a pathway there so that there's a flow to our walking to and from the Lord's table. There are gluten-free elements here at the front table. Don't feel rushed. Consider what the Lord has done for you as you stand in line. If you desire, feel free as you come up here to stand off to the side and partake. But we'd urge you, please do partake at or near the stations and then place the cups in the wastebaskets near the tables and then return to your seat. Feel free to participate as families or with friends around you together. You'll probably have to stand off to the side to do that. If coming to a station presents a physical hardship for you, uh, just raise your hand and a server will come to serve you. Okay? If, for some reason, you do not feel like partaking, just remain in your seat. Nobody's going to be looking at you. That whole thing of self-protection, don't worry. Nobody's thinking anything. There's many reasons why. And especially if you're not a believer in Jesus, we'd urge you not to. But there's other reasons. And don't, don't worry that anyone's looking down on you because that's why I don't want people to think we got to go row by row. So that you just go when the Lord wants you to. And don't go if the Lord doesn't want you to. Remember, communion has been done lots of different ways over the centuries. No one method is the right method. It's the meaning and theology of the Lord's table that are most important. We're doing communion this way over the next several weeks to focus our attention on personal and church revival. So focus your attention on that as you remember what our Lord Jesus has done for us. This week... The focus of our attention is going to be on three passages of Scripture that I'll have up on the screen here to consider what God does with small things. We're going to see a cloud the size of a man's palm. We're going to see a mustard seed. We're going to see five loaves and two fish in these three passages of Scripture. And as you read those, make it your prayer, Lord Help me to make a small beginning in my renewal of walk with you. Let's ask the Lord to enlarge for his glory the work of God in our lives and in the life of our church.